welcome, welcome. My name is Cassie Underwood, and I am Harvard's meditation advisor and also, and also will graduate in May with a Master's of Divinity. This is The Business of Spirituality, a panel on money, branding, and other taboos. So when you leave here tonight, we hope that you will feel comfortable or at least less tortured by making good money for your spiritual work and to have concrete action steps that you can take to bring in cash flow that will support your life and your mission. So we're gonna spend some time in conversation up here and then the rest of the time we'll take your questions and afterward everyone will be here to get your selfies going and to sign your books and anything you wanna do up here, one-on-one. -on -one. Um, so every single, I have, there, there are some incredible women here with me tonight and there's one who's not, yeah, yeah. And we're missing Mickey Agrawal. She is on the way. Her train was delayed. It was like the only train that was delayed, of course. And um, she's getting here as soon as she can. And she'll be here in about 15 minutes. Um, but every single woman, woman on this panel has inspired me deeply over the years and made a measurable impact on my life and my work. And I just want to thank you all for your work and for coming all the way to Harvard to um, talk to all of us. So we have Ra Goddess, yes. Ra Goddess is the entrepreneurial soul coach behind hundreds of breakthrough change makers, cultural visionaries, and social entrepreneurs. From multiple New York Times bestsellers to multi-million dollar social enterprises, Ra's unique methodology has empowered a new generation of conscious entrepreneurs to stay true, get paid, and do good. From the onset of her more than 30-year career as a cultural innovator, social impact strategist, and creative change agent, Ra has drawn on the power of creativity, culture, and community to move hearts, minds, and policy. Ra's work has focused on issues of racial justice and equality, electoral politics, offender aid and restoration, mental health and youth and women's empowerment. In 2008, she received the National Museum of Voting Rights prestigious Freedom Flame Award, and in 2009, she was awarded the Herb Alpert Hedgebook Prize. Later that year, the White House invited her to participate as part of a special delegation of nationally recognized cultural change agents in a national dialogue on civic participation. Also in 2009, Ra was invited to serve as a United States cultural envoy to Rwanda. As a creative change agent, her work has earned critical acclaim from international media such as Time Magazine, Interview, Essence, Variety, and the Chicago Tribune, among others. In 2014, Ra was chosen as a top 10 game changer by Muses and Visionary Magazine. And in 2017, Ra was chosen as one of the 50 women founders to watch by Essence Magazine. Additional awards and honors include Meet the Composer, the NPN 
Creative Fund, a semifinalist for Do Something's Brick Award, and a two-time semifinalist for Leadership for a Changing World, nominated by Eve Ensler. As CEO of Move the Crowd, Ra is galvanizing a movement of one million entrepreneurs dedicated to reimagining work as a vehicle for creative expression, financial freedom, and societal transformation. That is Ra Goddess, everybody. Woo! Yes. <laughs> Guru Jagat. Guru Jagat is the founder of Rama Institute for Applied Yogic Science and Technology, a kundalini yoga school with locations in Venice, California, Mallorca, Spain, and New York City, and the author of the best-selling book, Invincible Living, The Power of Yoga, the Energy of Breath, and Other Tools for a Radiant Life. Guru Jagat first met Yogi Bahan in 2002, and that encounter crystallized her prior spiritual explorations and launched her on the path of a kundalini yoga teacher. As the Piscean patriarchal energies fade into history, Guru Jagat has emerged as a leading global figure helping to create, delineate, and refine the new feminine matriarchal archetype. In 2017, Guru Jagat created the Aquarian Women's Leadership Society, which has members in over 20 countries. Guru Jagat is also the founder and CEO of Rama TV, Rama Records, and Rama Foundation. Guru Jagat, everyone. Kate Northrup. As an entrepreneur, best-selling author, and mother, Kate Northrup supports ambitious, motivated, and successful women to light up the world without burning themselves out in the process. Committed to empowering women entrepreneurs to create their most successful businesses while navigating motherhood, Kate is the founder and CEO of Origin Collective, a monthly membership site where women all over the world gather to achieve more while doing less. Her first book, Money, A Love Story, has been published in five languages. Kate's work has been featured by The Today Show, Yahoo Finance, Women's Health, Glamour, and The Huffington Post. And she's spoken to audiences of thousands with Hay House, Wonderlust, Usana Health Sciences, and more. Kate lives with her husband and business partner, Mike, and their daughters, Penelope and Ruby, in Maine. Find out more and receive your free copy of the five simple and effective ways to get the results you want in your business at katenorthrop.com. Kate's new book, Do Less, Do Less, A Revolutionary Approach to Time and Energy Management, will be released on April 2nd. Kate Northrup. Yeah. And once again, my name is Cassie Underwood. I am a spiritual teacher, speaker, and author. I founded a practice that teaches people how to feel peaceful and powerful no matter what's going on around them. Um, I'm also the author of the best-selling memoir, May Cause Love, published by Harper One Harper Collins. And I am Harvard's first ever meditation advisor, serving the student body in private sessions and group experiences. As founder of a signature spiritual practice, I work with private clients and create both online and in-person courses to release fear. My most recent course was called Revolution After Abortion, the first of its kind leading women and non-binary people to community, 
confidence, and peace of mind. As a public speaker, I've traveled the country to present no bullshit spiritual teachings everywhere from the University of California at Berkeley and New York City's Lincoln Center to churches in Texas and live television audiences on MSNBC. So that's me. So, we're going to start with questions about the inner tensions around money and business and spirituality, and then we'll talk about some brass tacks and concrete actions that you can take out of here to bring into your life and your business. How does that sound? Yeah? All right. So we'll start with that inner work. So let's begin by giving everybody a sense of your personal stories with money and business. Can you just share a little bit about your backgrounds? And don't leave out the struggle. Like, we want to hear the struggle, you know, if there was a struggle um, with money and, and business. And anybody can start. <laughs> Every time a question's asked, they all. <laughs> um, okay, struggle. Let's make this dramatic. Um, so I was raised by a, a single mother uh, who is a very hard worker and taught me a lot about work ethic. I think work ethic gets you everywhere. Um, and I was saying this last night, I don't feel like I have to say this as much in Boston because in, and in New England, you, you know, there's some hard working going on around here and I appreciate it, um, and at Harvard. But you know, we're, we're in California a lot and people think a 24 hour work week is full time. Um, and so we have to you know, kind of remind them. So, um, but I do feel work ethic gets you everywhere and I certainly, well, that was installed. Um, and I, I believe, and we were talking about this as well, the most successful people, no matter where, you know, in what industry or sector, fame, riches, whatever the things, you know, people think that they want, even though once you get them, it's a whole nother story. Um, every one of them has that one quality, which is hardcore work ethos. So I really, I, I was taught that at an early age. And then you know, just struggle, struggle, struggle. I mean, if you're an entrepreneur, what are you doing? You're up all night thinking about how to pay the rent. I mean, that's a welcome to the party. And that, that goes for about 20 years. Um, and you lose your youth. Uh, <laughs> you've traded your youth for some sort of dream um, of entrepreneurialism. And, uh, but but my teacher, Yogi Bhajan, says that the business and money are some of the quickest ways, including romantic relationship, to uh, become conscious and, and they're, they're the biggest spiritual practices and they will offer you the biggest spiritual tests. So um, he particularly said money and sex, they're the, they're the heaviest things on the planet. So if you can get conscious in money and sex, you're going to be able to maneuver a lot less complex situations with grace. So yeah, I mean, every step of the way, I, I started, a, I, I, when I started my kind of more brick and mortar aspect of my business, um, you know, it's like having a kid, you don't know until you know, and then you have the amnesia of you think you should do it, have another one. So um, <laughs> the hormones start to kick back in, and what's happening again? We're thinking about opening another, I can't believe it. Um, we're thinking about opening another studio. I'm like, what am I doing? I hear myself talk about it. <laughs> I'm like, um, but so it's, it's a mental disorder, entrepreneurialism. <laughs> um, so I'm, I, I'm, I'd like to admit that. Um, but that, that's kind of the story. It's a constant struggle. 
and it never, it, I mean, I think that if you're building something and you think it's going to be, whether it's a romantic relationship or any, you know, a brand or whatever, you think it's gonna be less than 20 years of hardcore work, then you're fooling yourself. Well, on that note. <laughs> yeah, so for me, um, I, I like to describe myself as a change of life baby born into the intersection of civil rights and hip hop. My parents were born in the 1920s, and they had me in their 40s. Uh, so there's a certain kind of sensibility that I have the privilege of carrying because of that intersection. Um, and certainly civil rights is always about how we open the door for everything that comes behind us. And the sensibility of hip hop is, you know, from nothing comes everything. And I think that those, there's something about those two sort of pillars and mantras that have very much shaped my entrepreneurial journey. Um, you know, I, I jokingly say that I signed up for the poverty trifecta. You know, it's like artistic, check, poor. Uh, activist, check, poor. <laughs> Woman of God, a spirit, oh, check, poor. <laughs> you know, poor, poor, and poor again. And so um, having to figure out how to hold the vibration of spirit and community and creativity while also navigating the material world has absolutely, for me, been a transformational spirit. It's like it's been a, a, a journey of God, like truly, um, and a journey absolutely of consciousness. And, um, you know, it, it, it got very real for me about 15 years ago when I returned from, um, from doing Envoy work and couldn't pay the rent and didn't have the energy to go out and hustle and figure it out. And that was the beginning of my awakening around this other aspect of resource and source. And, um, you know, and I think a lot of our conditioning is in that struggle, you know, um, how to have both. And so I know we're, we're going to go there more uh, in the conversation tonight. But, um, but I will say to you that, you know, um, on my knees, very humbly, learning all of the different ways that, that spirit and source manifests itself, which includes money. So I look forward to talking more about that. I'm sorry, did you say that you were born in the 1940s? So I said my parents had me in their 40s. Oh, okay. <laughs> my parents had like, what, me in their 40s. What is going on? But I will tell you, <laughs> I've been here for a little while. Mama been here for a little while, you know, good living. It's like spirit, you know. When you surrender your life to God, amazing things happen. But agreed, yeah. agreed. You know, uh, my story is a little different in that my business isn't as much like, like um, I didn't start so much in the spiritual world except for the fact that I was raised to believe that everything is God. Everything is spirit. So at, from a very young age, I loved, I hope it's okay to say this, from a very young age, I loved making money. And I didn't see it as separate ever. Um, so, you know, I had various and sundry issues, <laughs> getting into a bunch of credit card debt and um, being super intertwined with my mother and not dealing with that until way later in life than maybe I should have, um, you know, going into business partnerships blindly. But the big piece for me um, has been 
learning to noticing how I can and how other people can as well numb out around money and numb out around um, paying attention and being in the present moment. And the way that we deal with our money is very similar often to the way we deal with our time, um, which is why I'm talking a lot about time these days. Uh, just as a mom, my time just got like sucked right up. <laughs> I was like, wow, this is really a profound shift. And so I've, I've um, one of the things that's so important and that I'm working on every day with myself is how can I not keep myself small through rushing and checking out of the present moment? How can I not keep myself small from overspending or being unconscious? Because financial drama is a really great distraction from purpose. And we cannot show up for the world the way we need to when we can't figure out how to pay the rent. Now, sometimes, you know, necessity is a beautiful invent. What is that phrase? Thank you. <laughs> what is? Thank you. Necessity is the mother of all invention. Um, so I am like that pressure can be very powerful. And I'm certainly like, I don't think anyone is to blame for their financial drama. Um, however, we all can really take that moment to realize, okay, there was a great book um, that I didn't read, but the title was so brilliant. It was, um, <laughs> and I'll never forget it. It was, how can I change the world if I can't even find my keys? And it was a book about personal organization. However, I think it really applies to this conversation tonight around spirituality and work in the world, is how can we change the world if we can't pay the rent? And so it's really about you know, filling that cup first, which wasn't really my story, but anyway. It was really good to hear. Okay, so very powerful. I have a lot of things coming to mind. I want to understand, because there was a moment before you opened a business, and then a moment where you're like, I should open up a business or something of that nature, and then you open up a business. Mickey's here, everybody. Yeah. <laughs> Yay. Okay. Yes. Mickey's train was delayed. We, t we already we already told everybody. Yay, you're here. So. Yes. Ready to rock. Okay, so I'll, I'll um, read Mickey's bio after this question. So what was the moment when you knew it was time to open up a business? I have always had a business since I was like seven. So I can't really <laughs> answer that question. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting because I think for me it was owning that I was in business, mm. which was different, mm -hmm. you know. I think um, in that come to Jesus moment, when I was on my knees 15 years ago, owning the fact that I was in business, but I was operating like I wasn't. So I would say that that was for me that, that moment. Where I was like, oh, okay, this is not working. <laughs> this is a business and it's not, and the business model is not working. <laughs> we gotta do something about that, so yeah. Um, I was the president of the Babysitter's Club. Um, I was, <laughs> You know, it's a, it's a, it's a life, if, if you think that it's a good idea to create something and then, you know, create some sort of, Yogi Bhajan says, in order to be in profit, you have to be pro and fit. 
and that's that's a journey. You have to you have to be pro. You have to you know treat yourself and treat others and your clients or whatever in a professional way. Which there's a good book out which I also didn't read, um, called <laughs> I think it's called Going Pro or something. Did it's anybody read it? Pro, yeah, Steve Turning Pro. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I, I, it's a good concept. Um, but you know I was always doing something that had a creative impact. But that that the profit thing is an interesting part of that impact. Good. Uh, Mickey? Yes. <laughs> when did you know? When did I know? Um, I mean, the first first thing is I'm just very unemployable. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I just, I'm just like, you're not my dad. Don't tell me what to do. <laughs> so that was the Indian father <laughs> situation that was hard to negotiate. Um, but I would say outside of that, um, it was just by just seeing problems in the world. I think my parents, my father came to this country with $5 in his pocket from India. And my mom came to this country barely speaking English from Japan. And they met, they fell in love, and against their parents' wishes, they chose to marry each other, which was pretty disruptive in and of itself, in 1974. And when our family moved to, to Montreal, they, um, they knew nobody. They had no family, they had no friends, they had no relatives, they had nobody, and they just had each other. And they just never complained about anything in the world. They just basically, if there was a problem, they solved it. And I think for, for, for us, when we, for, when I say us, my twin sister, Rada, we always talk in we's. They're like, who's we? Like me and my sister. And, um, and our third sister. We just always, um, you know, watched our parents solve problems. And there was no gifted children's summer camp growing up. And they started the gifted children's summer camp with my mom's, you know, like barely speaking English. And, um, there was, you know, my parents believed that electronics was the future in like the late 80s, early 90s, and they were like, um, they, they were like, no, no, no kids learning about electronics, and so they, um, and so they created this, pro this school program for kids called Tomorrow's Professionals that taught kids about electronics. And my mom was like the president of tomorrow's professionals. <laughs> and so I just learned from them. Like if there was a problem, don't complain about it. Solve it. Go make something. Mm, amazing. So I bet you guys want to know more about Mickey, if you don't already know about Mickey. So I'm going to read your bio now. Mickey Agarwal was named 2018 Fast Company's Most Creative People. 2017 Young Global Leader by World Economic Forum, <laughs> Social Entrepreneur of the Year by World Technology Summit, and was one of Inc. Magazine's most impressive women entrepreneurs of 2016. <laughs> she co-founded Thinks, a high-tech period-proof underwear brand, and led the company as CEO to a valuation of over $150 million, and to Fast Company's most creative companies of 2017, all while helping tens of millions of women, period, better. She most recently founded Tushy, a company that is revolutionizing the American toilet category with a modern, affordable designer bidet attachment that both upgrades human health and hygiene, as well as the environment from wasteful toilet paper consumption. She and her team are also helping fight the global sanitation crisis by bringing clean latrines to underserved communities in India through their partnership with Samagra. SNL just covered Tushy after its subway campaign was banned. 
<laughs> she is also the founder of the acclaimed farm-to-table alternative pizza concept called Wild, with three locations in New York City, one in Guatemala, and more on the way. Additionally, HarperCollins published her first book entitled Do Cool Shit on entrepreneurship and lifestyle design, and Hay House published her second book, Disruptor, Disrupt Her, yes, um, on January 29th, 2019, Mickey Agrawal. Yeah. It was the trains. Yeah. Yes, clean the But yeah, trains. this book just came out. It's very, very, very exciting. <laughs> very exciting, yes. So um, one of my greatest challenges as a spiritual entrepreneur has been charging the appropriate amount of money like like more than zero dollars per hour <laughs> for my work. That would reflect the value of my work while simultaneously supporting my business growth at the rate that I need and want it to go. So how do you know how much to charge and how much is appropriate to charge? Error. <laughs> Yeah, trial and error. You kind of just figure out, like, is there any kind of competitive product that's similar to yours? But, you're, you know, our products are different, but anything that's kind of similar, what are they charging? Um, and what are they offering for what they're charging? Because it's like if you offer a better product, for example, there are better bidet, there, there are other bidet attachments on the market that are cheaper, but they're just ugly and weird looking and <laughs> not designer. And so would people spend $69 on a modern bidet product that easily could fund your toilet? You know, probably actually yes, you know, compared to the Japanese toilet, which costs thousands of dollars. So, you know, compared to what's on the market, our product is super affordable. Compared to other kind of products like it, there are cheaper, but you know, you can you, you kind of know quality when you see it, and you'll often choose that if it's not that much more expensive. I think I'd go there in like, what do you, what do you invest in what you create, and how do you develop a relationship with the power and the love that you invest in what it is that you create whatever that is so it's you know i you know many many years like just when i was starting out to sort of take responsibility i really looked at like what what do i infuse in workshops what do i infuse in keynotes what do i infuse in the coaching work that we do what you know what all goes into that and what do i deliver for the people that i'm serving and i and i really want to encourage it because i would say often in a spiritual context we don't always stay present to the impact that we have on people. You know, so if you get your son or your daughter back, what is that worth? I don't know, you know. Um, but there is something about recognizing value from that perspective, from what we invest, and from what we actually contribute to the people that we're serving. That feels very much, for me, important in considering how I think about that exchange of investment versus compensation and, and, and the cyclical nature of that. I think for me, the other thing is I dedicated myself to always working in ways that made the pie bigger. So my entrepreneurs on average who coach and work with me get a 10 to 15x 
on their investment. I can't promise that there are laws that don't allow us to promise that, but if I look at my results, 10 to 15x whatever that investment is, which enables me to feel really good about where we are in terms of what we offer. I used to be a feng shui consultant, and there's not really a going rate for feng shui consultants. Now there is, but it was like before Google was as much of a thing. So in terms of pricing, you know, something that's a little less tangible, I just had to make it up. And, um, <laughs> and, and just as a practical, like if you're offering, you know, sessions or, co you know, something like that, I would really, I would, I would do trial and error. So I would go do a session charging a certain amount and then I would walk away with the check in my hand and feel like, did that feel equal to the energy I just expended? And if I didn't, then I charged more to the next person, which may seem a little bizarre, but that is what I did. Yeah. I just really checked in with the feeling of walking away or I would imagine the feeling of walking away from a consult and feel like, okay, would you know, whatever I was charging, I don't remember, but how, how did that feel in my purse walking away, essentially? Because, yeah. I mean, it really, money is just like, we made it up. Yeah. It doesn't exist. Yeah. It's just, we just, what is, is it? You know, it's mm -hmm. nothing. We just all agreed that it exists, and so we live in this system, and so we're just making it up. Yeah. I, I know I actually literally talk about that exact thing in, in Disrupt Her, where mm -hmm. it's like money, is a made-up energy exchange that we all agreed to, but then also when you take that one step further, everything is a made-up, you know, construct. Literally, like the fact that there are these weird borders on this planet where these weird people in these costumes are like wearing uniforms that we made up, and you know, you have to get like past them with little pieces of paper called passports <laughs> that we made up, and we're like, yeah, we're gonna do that on this made-up thing, this like imaginary line. And we're gonna, yeah, and then, you know, it's just like, and then the same thing with time, the same thing with, I mean, literally careers, professional failure, like no other animal on earth talks about failure. We're the only literally human beings talk about failure. You know, even two like badgers were like, oh God, I, I failed doing that uh, tree climb uh, the other day and catch that nut that didn't, uh, you know, it's just, so it's kind of like, it's all made up and we can, we can literally invent any new possibility that we want if we give ourselves permission. And so I think that's what's exciting is that when you actually do get the veil of like, wait, why am I wiping my ass with dry paper? This is fucking weird, you know? And then it's like, I don't do that with the rest of my body or anything in my life that's dirty, you know? So I'm just going to like, you know, actually wake up to like water, you know? And to clean myself properly. And so it's just that, it's like everything in our lives, like what can we like just take the veil of this sort of preconditioning off? You know, I've been reading this amazing book by Bell Hooks, um, you know, and it's uh, called The Will to Change. And it's really about just this patriarchal power dynamic structure that we live in. And it's not like about men bad, women, you know, women good. It's just about we're all, everyone is wrapped up in this crazy preconditioning, including men. And it's just, it's wild. So it's like, let's just erase it all and just start fresh. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I, I think just on a pragmatic level, as a consumer, I talked a little bit about this last night, that it, it, you, I always put myself in what I call second position, which is as the consumer, as the person who's coming to you know, the talk or the, the, to buy the product or to you know, whatever, um, and really kind of looking at 
the world and the experience from that position because it will tell you a lot if you do that and if you make it a, a practice it will give you it's such a you know it will give you a lot of perspective on what's going on so you're not in a bubble um, but as a consumer and I think that, that we're going to see a lot of changes with Gen Z around this I have some predictions around the, the how monetize how the monetization of gen, Generation Z is going to happen but the I, I think the levels in which somebody can participate in what you have to offer, I feel are, are really important because I like that as a consumer. Um, I like to be able to, you know, get the Target dress that's designed by whoever who did the, like the cheapo thing, um, and I like to also buy the more expensive thing occasionally or whatever. So I think the spectrum of offering where people can go on your YouTube channel and experience it for free, or they can do a lot of things for free, and the the, the younger generations are going to be demanding that. Um, and then there's a lot of things. There's other levels of things that people can participate in. I think in terms of social entrepreneur uh, entrepreneurialism, it's a must now. It's not. It's not. If you are a, a socially forward entrepreneur, um, you have to be if you want to monetize and continue to be relevant in this time. So then you have to figure out how are you giving back and how how is your integrity uh, moving through the whole kind of mandala of what you're offering. And to not be afraid of the exchange, because we've been exchange. We've been in exchange from the beginning of time. There have been so many forms of currency, and so it's interesting, you know, we talk about like money being made up, by the way. <laughs> we talk about money being made up. Um, you know, we've had various forms of currency in exchange, and, and they've been utilized to revitalize community, to create a kind of sense of abundance and wealth that not just one person hoards and has, but that we all have a sense of sharing. You know, so it's like my pot, your water, your, you know, spoon, your fork. Like, what, what do we get to create together as community so that everybody eats? And I want to make sure that we don't lose sight of that, you know, in this sort of potential aversion to currency. Currency is energy. And currency is meant to move. It's not meant to be stagnant or held or hoarded. It is meant to flow. And it is meant to flow in a way that honors what each of us brings to the equation, recognizing that that's how you get a whole society, is when everybody can contribute and be in their genius and be in their brilliance. And it makes the whole better and the whole pie bigger. Just to echo something that you said, it just, um, have you guys heard of the term Indian giving? You know the term Indian giving? Like, what does Indian giving mean? Right, exactly, to give something to, and, and, and take it back. And it's, it's actually such a crazy thing that, that that's what we've been led to believe it means. When the, the quick story is that um, the Native Americans, the Indians, used to circulate this sort of pipe. And every time a new community would come and sort of visit, a new chief from another tribe would come and visit, they would basically gift the pipe to the other person, and, then, um, and that person would, would smoke the pipe and then take it with them. And then it would circulate and circulate and circulate. And the idea was that money was and, and energy was meant to circulate. There was no thing. If the thing was left on your mantle, it's worthless. It's dead. And the idea is that everything in our lives should be circulating. We shouldn't be hoarding and collecting and, and just like trying to make, you know, keep our money in one place or keep our, it should just be constantly circulating. When it's not, then there's this, this energetic weirdness, a death that happens. And so the story is that this, this white, the sort of this white man came 
to the community and the Indians as a sort of form of, to, to maintain the tradition, offered them, offered this sort of white settler up the pipe to smoke. And the, um, he smoked it and then took it and just put it on his mantle, mantelpiece and just kept it there. And so then one day an Indian went into this sort of, so the settler's house and saw that the pipe there and asked to smoke it and then took it to continue to circulate it. And then that sort of, that settler named this, coined this term Indian giving. So we should all refrain from using that term moving forward. But it's, it's, so, it's so true how it should absolutely be circulated. You know, everything in life should be circulated, should not, otherwise it's just dead. Amen. Okay, so going off a little bit of what Ra was saying, some of us struggle with mixed emotions around money. So on the one hand, we love it. We want more of it. But on the other hand, we have some baggage around it, right? And Ra and I were talking about this earlier, so I thought that maybe you could start us out by talking about um, if you had any money qualms and what you did to overcome it and what you could recommend for overcoming yeah, money well, qualms. You know, as you all already know, poverty trifecta. Mm -hmm. um, mm. and, and messages and a lot of cultural agreement in each of those respective communities. So it was, it was hard for what me because- What do you mean by poverty? Ah, uh, so poor, so artist, poor. Woman of spirit, poor, mm. activist, poor, mm. <laughs> right? Mm. So, you know, in terms of what was in the cultural agreement and conditioning with regards to those um, aspects of identity. And so, um, for me, I had to recognize all of the different levels of conditioning, the personal conditioning, the societal conditioning, and the places where I was dealing with my own personal dilemma, like who I believed I was or was not, or worthy or not worthy, to what I actually felt was right in terms of how I felt about capitalism, how I felt about systemic poverty, how I felt about uh, racism, and all of the other things that influenced the ways in which people were able to thrive or not thrive in various societies and communities. And, and for me, having to actually slow my reality down to actually observe what it was that I was saying to myself and how what I was saying to myself was producing the reality that I didn't want. That makes sense. And understanding that there's a correlation and having to start to actually see like, oh, if I say to myself, they're not gonna pay me, then I shouldn't be shocked when there's no check in the mail. Do you know what I'm saying, you all? Like, and how it really does line up, and what does it mean to be responsible for what I'm speaking into reality, knowing that what I say has so much power, right? So that was the beginning for me, the beginning. What about you all? Money qualms? Money, money qualms and how did you get over them? For me, it's always been a conversation around self-value and, and feeling like, well, is it, you know, is it okay? Like, is it worth, it, am I worth that? <laughs> you know, and, and really noticing how often in my own journey and how often the, the female entrepreneurs I work with give away their power. So we think, oh, well, the, the other 
you know, the other speaker is, is better or, you know, my husband or that other, what, whoever, you know, it's always somebody else. And so, so for me, it's been like, I literally, I, I really believe in the power of, of ritual, um, simple ones. And I actually did, I created a ritual, um, of, of my own turning pro moment where I drew a line on the sand in, in the sand on a beach and I decided from that moment forward, when I stepped over that line in the sand, I would know I would I would be I would be pro, and I was no longer going to give my power away financially, and I was going to own my worth. And that physical act, I'm really about embodiment and doing things with the body to remember that feeling, and I will never forget that feeling. And anytime I want to give it away, I remember my line in the sand. It, it's an interesting, I, I was just thinking about, it's a, a little bit of an interesting um, experience in my business because I, and I think maybe some of you will resonate with this just depending on you know where you're kind of taking your careers, but um, I really look at the generation of capital and the generation of any circulation inside the, the different levels and aspects of um, the Rama kind of experience as not belonging to me. Uh, because I, I'm on a spiritual mission. Therefore, there's a level of accountability that I have with the resources that probably is not, it wouldn't be there if I, if I didn't have that kind of um, supra uh, accountability to my lineage and to what I see in terms of being a, a leader and really how I feel that the everyth everything's transparent now. So people can feel um, that the audience and the, your clientele and the the customer is so much more sophisticated and getting more sophisticated by the moment. So they can actually feel your relationship with inflow and outflow and what that, what that looks like and where your kinks are. Everybody knows. So if you think you're hiding it, you're not. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I'm really, I'm really aware of that in and kind of one, one of my kinks is the other side of things, which is like, I'll take a round for everybody. Let's go. Like, I just, you know, I want everybody, you know, so I'm, I'm, I'm always, the, you know, I was always the one who's like, let's get one for everyone. Let's, you know, so it's the, it's the kind of other side of growing up in poverty with the reaction to that of growing up with a single mom, which is like, let's, let's roll, you know, I want to roll and let's, everybody should roll with me um, and I'll pay for it. Um, but so, you know, I think it's like nuanced in that way. And because I, I have a a, a spiritual lineage, uh, th th there's been a, a n another level of kind of accountability that, that I see that the inflow and outflow is really due to my devotion to that. Um, so it's a little, you know, it's a, but I think for some of you that may be resonant to what you're up to and, and your mission. Uh, hmm. Yeah, I mean, I learned how to budget when I was 11 years old. <laughs> my dad sat us down and was like, you need to Spend less than you earn. That's it. <laughs> That's it. Done. <laughs> and um, <laughs> it was pretty, I mean, that was like, oh, okay, I just have to live below my means and like, and I can be free. And I think that, you know, I, I learned, I, I read a bunch of books about the fact that so many American families are so fraught with credit card debt themselves, parents, that they don't want to talk to their children about 
about finances because there's so much shame themselves around it. And so it just perpetuates this like crazy cycle. Um, and then it's just like, let's just, you know, like keep up with the Joneses and pretend that we're fine. And then it's just this like weird competitive thing that just kind of kills the spirit. And so I think my parents were actually like, my dad was like, oh, frugal is a compliment, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and so when you say like, yeah, like being frugal, like I'm, I'm proud of that. I'm proud that I, you know, really, I value the energy that money is. And, um, and also, I also value deep self-work. And I think that so often we can, easily blame like well I don't have enough this and I don't have enough that because I'm a woman of you know like cause th that that I have butted up against the fact that I'm you know raising money has been really challenging for for me because the products I've been launching are very strange initially and um, period underwear should I be hearing about this <laughs> you know? um, and should I get my wife in the room <laughs> you know um, and so it was just like I just got a lot of that and um, you know, uh, poop spraying everywhere. <laughs> Should I be wet? You know. <laughs> uh, anyway, it's just a constant barrage of those kinds of things. And <laughs> like a bidet. What? Um, yeah. So um, <laughs> you know. Um, so so I think I, I you know I started working with a life and leadership coach like about six years ago, and. I really faced a lot of my own shit. And I'm just like, oh, well, you know, like, you know, blaming a little bit other people as to what is going on with my life. And I was just like, no, no, no. Like, she was like, no, sweetheart, you chose everything in your life. You chose every single bad investor or whatever. Like, you made your bed. You chose the bad employee, you know, you, or you chose that person that you knew is going to, you know, because of your relationship with your father, whatever, you know? And so let's clean all of it up. And then let's reorganize the pieces. Let's figure everything out. And then money will come. And like, man, like when I first started working with her, my thanks was $60,000 in the hole. And within three years of working with her, 50 million in revenue, you know? And so it was just like such clear, if I take radical responsibility for every single thing that happened for me in my life, and just, just say like, I hold all of the power to paint my own canvas for my life, and make the choices and a much smarter, thoughtful, less sort of fly by the seat of my pants kind of person. My coach called me um, a, a silver lining-aholic. <laughs> I, I would always look at the good and really kind of like stuff the bad under the rug and just, you know, and, I would, and, then, and then it would come out in this sort of like angry way, like, you know, and it was just sort of not productive. And so she just, every week for 90 minutes for the last, you know, now six years has been just like, bitch slapping me in the face. You're dumb. And I'm like, thank you. I love you. <laughs> you know? She's all, you know, I went through a really tough experience and she's like, what's the name of your book again? I was like, disrupt her. She's like, shut up. And I was like, right. <laughs> you know? And so it's just, I need that, you know, sometimes. Uh, that really helps. I just want to underscore, because it's like, if we want to know what's between us and our money, it's what wants to be healed mm -hmm. at the center yes. of our humanity. Yes. And I've been waiting forever for that course, mm -hmm. and I haven't seen it, so we created it. I just want to say that. Mm. Um, and we'll talk maybe more about that at some point, but, but I, but I want to say that it is about us coming into the wholeness of ourselves. Mm. 
That's really what it is. And, you know, we joked earlier about sex and, you know, the great portals. And it was so funny because we said, we said it earlier as well that the great portals are like sex. And I said food, too, though, and money. You know what I mean? Like if you really want to meet yourself, if you want to meet yourself on all of the different planes uh, which you occupy, you know, the shadow and the light, any one of those portals, if you, go, if you do the real work, any one of those portals will get you there. Um, and so I think it's so important to say that at the center of it is healing. And I, I say it also because sometimes we chase the tips and the tools. We chase the, the one hit wonder quick, oh, let me go take a financial literacy course. And I say, you know, I take nothing away from financial literacy work because I think it's important. But the truth is until you heal, you can't hear. So no matter what, you know, you're getting, um, you feel what I'm saying, you can't really receive it until you've gotten good with you and you at a very, very soul level. And, and the most exponential growth I've ever experienced in my own reality and in the reality of the people we serve has been rooted in healing trauma, has been rooted in healing unworthiness, has been rooted in healing scarcity, you know, we can sort of name what the root causes, causes are that actually prevent healing issues of safety. We can name what they are. You heal those things and you would be blown away to see the degree to which your reality shifts around money. Mm -hmm. So um, let's talk about capitalism and some of us deal with this tension between capitalism and the fact that we, you know, with a business you exist within the realm of capitalism. So how have you, if this has been something that you've been dealing with or thought about, how have you eased that tension for yourself? What do you make of it? I think conscious capitalism is the thing that's going to change the world. It's, it's, it's more than further than nonprofits and government than mm -hmm. anything else because it's conscious businesses that have some skin in the game to really like both do good and do well. Mm -hmm. that's, what, that's what moves society forward. And I think that um, I sit on the board of conscious capitalism with you know, the founder of Whole Foods Market, John Mackey, and you know, Kip Tindell, the founder and CEO of the Container Store, and Trader Joe's. And, and these are all you know, conscious from the perspective of how they treat their employees, how they treat their suppliers, how they treat their shareholders, how they treat them, you know, th th like pretty much everyone, the environment, you know, I always challenge the container store a little bit, but, um, but they're like, we're, you know, we're, we're, we're creating long-term sort of like equity for people in, in that, like how they create organization in their lives is really important. So, you know, but like for the most part, you know, the Grameen Bank president, all these amazing um, leaders. And what's interesting is that you know, John, John, who's now the godfather of my son, John Mackey, who's, you know, one of the, one of the dearest friends of mine, um, he, you know, he and I have long, long conversations about the fact that, you know, Whole Foods is a, is, is a $17 billion business. And they, they spend, you know, easily $250 million a year on healthcare and on health work and wellness things for their employees. They do such good work for the world. And because they're a big corporation, people are like, fuck you guys, you're capitalists and you're pigs and like, and he's just like, what the F? Like, I'm just trying to literally help as many people as I can while I'm here for such a short amount of time in my life. And that's why Conscious Capitalism Inc. was formed. This organization was to really say, like, can we scale really amazing, empowered, positive, conscious businesses, even if as, as they get really big, and still like have a different perspective of, oh, big business. You know, it's just, 
maybe that's good for the world if done right. You know, so I, I have a really good relationship with capitalism. <laughs> yeah. I'm gonna go with what Nikki said. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'll add a piece, but I wanna I wanna honor. Well, I was just gonna say that we travel, you know, probably 250 days a year, and we travel all around the world. Um, and wow. you know, it's 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 a heavy duty thing, but I think travel gives you something. The worth of travel it gives you perspective that is just so valuable. Um, and I do find the more I travel, the less I consume in ways that I consumed when I didn't travel as much, which I think is interesting. But that's not my point. Um, my point is that I, you know, of all the faults of capitalism and of all the issues and the, the uh, adolescence, we'll call it, of the human species on this planet um, and the, the depth of the kind of uh, collective conscious um, self-destructive thought form, which it, as that you know, has permeated through the collective consciousness, we, um, can't, we can't create things that are not destructive for the planet, for the, our families, for our communities, um, because that, you know, that we're either on a constructive kind of um, uh, thought or energy or we're on a destructive because we live in a kind of polarity experience in this particular matrix. Um, but something for all of the faults and all of the issues that you see in America and other capitalist countries, I do, when I return to America, I really appreciate the entrepreneurial bootstrapping um, kind of American way and investing in small business and a lot of the opportunities. I was just speaking at a conference in the UK and the, the investment structures are, are much different there and it's much more rigid, rigid and, um, and that kind of thing. And I just, there is something to be said about uh, as, as messy as it's been and as destructive as it's been, the same energy of the destructiveness of capitalism can and will be. I believe, uh, used and turned towards the constructive use of capitalism. And I agree with you 100%. This is how we're going to change. Because Yogi Bhajan and a lot of the spiritual teachers that came at kind of the end of what we would call the age of Pisces, which is, mm -hmm. you know, kind of the, the, the latter part of the 20th century, they came to disrupt what people thought a spiritual teacher looked like. So what are you, what, whatever you think about Osho and Wild Wild Country, he took an incarnation to basically disrupt what it looked like to be a spiritual teacher. Same thing with Yogi Bhajan. Same thing with His Holiness uh, the Dalai Lama. He very much is disrupting what it looks like to be a, a spiritual teacher and a Tibetan kind of Buddhist and a you know political figure. He, he's he's very an interesting figure in this way. Um, and one and Yogi Bhajan, my teacher, he basically wanted wanted to deeply disrupt the, the spiritual kind of um, a destructiveness around thinking that in order to be spiritual, you have, you have to also not have um, an inclination to be a capitalist or an inclination towards money. And he would do things just to mess with everybody. Like he would spend $100,000 in a day uh, just so everybody would be like, you know, uh, because he, he knew how to make money, he knew how to spend money. So it was no problem to him. Um, and a lot of these teachers, that's what they were doing. Um, is basically to show that, that, that all of our spiritual chauvinism 
around what it looks like. It's chauvinistic, basically, around what it looks like to be spiritual, what it looks like to be you know, a person of God or a person of, of doing a higher, you know, some higher calling. It's a certain type of chauvinism. Um, and so I think we're all here to basically deconstruct that and mm -hmm. disrupt it and create a, a new archetype of, of a very constructive, very productive and resourceful group of leaders that can make big change in politic, in economy, and in every sector of society. Here's the thing. We need y'all to have money. Yeah. <laughs> I want to say, like, y'all are it. Y'all are the transformation. You know, you all are looking at us. I'm looking at y'all, because I'm like, this is where it's at, right out here. And I say that because, you know, the shift for me even when I went through my financial education, I had my sort of come to Jesus moment, the, the shift for me was spiritual. You know, I never got excited about making money, but I got very excited about changing the game. And for me, changing the game of capitalism is about recognizing that you are an economy unto yourself. And I want to say that because I, you know, I also know a lot of those folks in the conscious capitalism movement and love them and appreciate them but I, I think there's something also about us not always looking to the big guy to make the change. Mm -hmm. We're the revolution. And the degree to which we understand the power of how we acquire and spend and utilize our resources. Is, you know, thinking about your comment about how we be stewards of our resources and the commitment to have resources to leverage towards more good is important. My big awakening around capitalism was like, oh, if I don't participate, it's actually gonna get worse. Yes. So I need to be participating with a certain level of consciousness if I wanna see the energy of capitalism shift, if I wanna see the energy of it change. So then it became, okay, I don't like my dry cleaner. Not a nice person, always yelling at the staff in the back, got an attitude. I'm firing my dry cleaner, and I'm going to find a righteous dry cleaner. I'm going to find an organic dry cleaner. You know what I'm saying? Somebody who aligns with my values, somebody who smiles, who's happy to see me when I come into you know, his or her store. Do you feel me? And I did it with every single place where I spent money. And I went from being angry about spending money to being joyful about spending money. Because I was like, oh, if I go buy things, I'm Mickey's my girl, like, let's do that. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> right? And you all, and think about what the, because this is what we came from. This is what we came from. Right, Tushy, all of it, mama. Wild, all of it. This is what we came from. We came from the community where you knew the butcher. You knew the, the organic produce. You feel me, the farmer. You knew where you got your vegetables from. And you were supporting those families. And those economies, and those are the things that we get the opportunity to come back to. Same way you get to make your money. I don't serve people I don't love. I don't serve people I don't believe in. I don't, you feel what I mean? And my work is to have that be more and more people every single day. As I heal whatever stands between me and anybody. You hear what I'm saying? So personal economy and your ability to create an economy that you, that is guided by your values, your commitments, what you say matters, how you do your work, how you receive compensation for your work, how you then in turn spend the fruits of that labor. All of it is energy. And all of it gets to be governed and decided by you. And I say that's the real revolution.
something that I want to underscore what Raja said is that is praying with our dollars. Mm -hmm. and, and I really see it as a restorative capitalism where we are all praying with our dollars. And we're talking about, um, we're talking about money. And in the body, if, if you're familiar with the chakra system, the second chakra, which is the reproductive area, has to do with money, sex, and power. Mm -hmm. And were you talking about the ways that we get the, well, anyway, the portals, the con, the way we get, yeah. <laughs> but, but the money, yeah, the, the money and the sex are a big deal, but they're connected to power. So yes, of course, power can be used in, in terrible ways, but we all have that power, which is exactly what Ra was talking about firing her dry cleaner. That is our own individual power to change the system as we pray with our dollars and vote with our dollars, yeah. Okay, so I told you that we were gonna talk about brass tacks after we got into the, um, the more emotional stuff, but we are a little bit shorter on time than expected because this has been so incredible. So what I'm thinking is we should just go ahead and open it up to you all, and if you have questions about brass tacks, then, then ask away. Okay. Yeah, just like like uh, if you have questions about brass tacks, if you have questions about um, like like the technical like branding, like the technical aspects of of business, and a microphone will come to you. So just raise your hand, and Roisin will will bring you the mic. Thank you. Um, thank you for your time, everyone, for being here. Um, I don't have a question about brass tacks, but um, in this lecture, and I've been to some lectures recently focusing on women, I know there are some men in the group, but focusing on women uh, knowing their value in terms of being an entrepreneur, starting a business, and really knowing your value, and then charging um, something that is reflective of your value. Um, or even if you're doing work um, in spirituality, being reflective of your value again. I was wondering if someone on the panel could perhaps speak to if we are really pushing the importance of knowing your value and, and charging what you think that value reflects, do you think there, that in turn limits the accessibility of perhaps spiritual practices in perhaps you know, working class folks or underprivileged communities um, and how to sort of reconcile wanting as a, a woman uh, offering a spiritual practice and doing work that you think is valuable and important and knowing your value, um, but also making it or accessible rather to folks that might need it more, um, that might need it more. I just want to say, you know, my, my opinion on that is it, it, technology, 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 technology. It, it really allows access. Anybody who has internet, which isn't everyone on the planet, but it is a, a, a good amount of people on the planet have some sort of internet access. You therefore, do. yeah, therefore they can, you know, if you make content that they can consume, um, they can, they can ex you know, experience whatever you're offering. And so I think technology is the great leveler, and it's one of the major kind of um, things that are happening in this age that I think are going to be, it's going to continue to um, 
create a, a, a leveling playing field for people uh, in every way. Um, whether it's somebody who, I love how Gary Vee talks about, you know, if you're an entrepreneur um, over between the age of 40 and 70, you now can basically um, do things that never before have been able to be done because of technology. I mean, this is the thing. So I, I feel like technology is really a place where you can offer things for free or for very little um, or donation or whatever, and, and it doesn't require as much of your kind of FaceTime. Um, so that's just a pragmatic. And also, you, you, I, it makes me feel good to have different levels of participation. I'll reiterate that. I have a foundation. There's you know, a, a level of complete you know, whatever in all things that we offer. There's scholarship, and there's that kind of, you know, we have a by donation um, healing center in an underserved kind of area of Los Angeles and all that kind of stuff. So there's that level. Then there's just all the free technology content, digital content. And then it goes up from there. And then somebody comes for it to a yoga class for a very you know very little amount of money or some sort of experience like that so but even that may be too much so then you have something you have you, you make things that are of value to people that don't cost them anything i do a i do a booty burn thing on youtube for 10 minutes every day and it's great <laughs> what my workout and it's free it's a spiritual practice called booty burn it's called booty burn <laughs> <laughs> Like, it's oh, a dharma. Yeah. And, and I do that one too. <laughs> you do. It's so good. And you're like, oh. But it's like, you know, you, you can, there's so much free. You can literally learn how to code. You can learn every language. You can learn literally every dance modality. You can do anything uh, through YouTube. So build a house. Just tiny piece. I'm mindful of just kind of balancing voices here. But, um, to Guru Jaga's, Jaga's point, definitely range of services, but also invite them to invest. I come back to this exchange piece. Sometimes we sort of go, oh, lower income community or community that is underprivileged or underserved, however we term it, you know, and I have lots of conversations about those terms, but indulge me for a minute. Um, there's dignity. There's dignity for them in investing in their own transformation. And we get to invite them to not stay in the same place. We get to invite them to participate in the exchange, even if it's 25 cents. You all hear what I'm saying? Like, it's not even about the amount as much as it is about the dignity that we get to offer that says you get to participate in your own transformation. Whether you're bringing an apple pie or you're bringing $100. You all hear me? We, sometimes for a year to go you, to land, whatever, and I'm yeah. saying it because sometimes we're in these same communities and they got the flyest kicks, they got the hottest new iPhone, they got the you know what I mean, and there's a way we get to call each other forth as partners in the stewardship of community. So. Thank you so much. This has been very insightful. And I had a question. I see all of you, um, very powerful women, who are incredibly different in so many ways and yet have so much in common. And I'm wondering, um, doing spiritual business work, um, how to avoid the traps of the ego and this sense of, oh, wow, and now I have money and now I have power, and to be authentic and not 
kind of lose your way just because other people are telling you, in order to succeed, you must do this because that's the only way it works. Thank you. I will say that in my work, um, if I'm not doing my own spiritual work, with, which is ego-crushing work, I have nothing to offer. So part of the work of, of moving um, forward with my business is the spiritual work of the, the shrinking of the ego. You have to have people who, don't, who are not drinking your Kool-Aid around you. I mean, all around you. And people who just, I, my, my director of operations, no matter what I say to her, she's like, no. I mean, that is, and that, I mean, she's, it's, she's you know, she's such a, a guru for me. Um, but, you know, you have to people not, 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 and that's very, very important that you make sure that there are a bunch of people around you who are on your team, who are smarter than you, more competent than you, aren't buying your shit, aren't, you know, that, that, they really are going to provide a certain kind of level of, of accountability. And then, I don't know, I think the word ego is used really badly in the West, personally, because ego death or being egoless looks like a psychotic episode and it's not pretty and it, it is not something that anyone in this room should be trying to get because you won't be a functional member of society now there are people who are on certain types of rigorous spiritual paths that are doing some sort of you know deconstruction of the ego, but it's because they have people taking it, they have attendance, they have people taking care of them, they don't have to show up on time, they don't, they don't have to deal with money. It's a very different, the, you know, for the most part here, you wouldn't be at Harvard or you wouldn't be out at night in Boston. You're a householder. You, you know, you have kids, you have things to do, you have to show up for things. So you, the whole ego, the usage of that term in the West, I think is really misappropriated and misunderstood. The ego is a container, and just like a container, like the container store, um, what you put in it, how you, how, what you do with it, um, how, how you, what you do with it is the question. And so then you just want a bunch of people around you who are making sure that you're not kind of getting lost in the thing. And that's, I think, any successful, anyone will say that they have people around them that don't that don't buy it and then they're the best people so, you know and you also need you also need ego to drive the thing forward especially if you're trying to fight society and if society is this big behemoth thing and you're trying to disrupt it and move the conversation forward using a product and and everyone's just like what are you I don't get it what are you trying to do I don't and you have to really just like be like I, I got this like no like Everyone here needs this product, like, you know? And you kind of just like, the boreal forests in Canada are dying, you know? Just like, you kind of like, you know, you're just like, and, and, and like, and I'm gonna say, you know, you have to kind of like have that, that thing where you can do it. Yeah. And if you, if you don't think you can do it, and you're like, oh, like we're all in this together. Like they actually, like leaders are needed. Like oftentimes, like I tried doing the whole like, you know, everyone, we're all in like, you know, the same plane <laughs> thing. And it just doesn't, you're giving too much rope and then there's no leadership and nothing happens and nothing moves and everyone just complains and just like gets mad at each other. There needs to be like that person and call it ego, but like, but like ego for the sake of the cause, like ego for the sake of moving this thing forward. That's important, you know? You can also trust yourself with more. I know that for me a long time I stayed small Resources would corrupt me, and, and it is important to have those checks and balances. But I will also say to you, at a fundamental level, you can trust yourself with more. 
goodness that you are gets mm. magnified when you have more. Why wouldn't we want to magnify the goodness of who we are? Mm-hmm. You know, so to just you know to just know that. Yeah. How do you make money or not go in the red as a nonprofit? Um, our mission is to prevent obesity, chronic disease, and malnutrition through the education and advocacy of healthy living and plant-based diet. And we run two programs. We run Real Kids, Real Food in the inner city uh, in public housing um, for parents and, and kids. And we run a program called Eat to Thrive. And we have a lot of people who have great needs and are very sick, and we, I just want to let them in free um, because they have, I mean, they really deserve it. But we need charged also in order to survive. Yeah, um, business models sort of even come back to you in terms of like thinking about your models. So I do a lot of work with non-for-profits around revenue generating strategies, which I think is critical because funding priorities shift every so many years so you can get multi-year funding from a foundation who will then wake up tomorrow and tell you they're now they've done 10 years of that they're now going to turn over here and there you go right and so i I think it's vital that you have multiple revenue generating streams and so a couple things one is i come back to this conversation about investment and dignity even if they bring you a dollar energetically there's something about you being willing to be in that exchange with them and them being willing to economically participate in their own transformation that is important. So I'm even gonna say to you, even if you sliding scale it, that's number one. Number two is to start to look at who are other partners who are willing to stand with you as sponsors and collaborators. So you'll do grants, of course, as foundation money, but there are corporate sponsors, corporations who have X amount of resources that they set aside, whether they use those as philanthropic dollars, whether they use those as marketing dollars, there's an opportunity to partner. You could partner with a Whole Foods. You could partner with a Kroger's. You, could, you know what I mean? Because they want to be associated with providing healthy options and alternatives for communities. So it's starting to sort of think on all of those different potential ways that you can create partnership including with people on the ground, on the front line, and then looking at, oh, how can I partner with business? Oh, how can I partner with government? Oh, how can I partner with philanthropy? So that you've got multiple revenue generating strategies moving towards the solution that you want to be a part of. A simple fun thing to do, and by the way, I just love that she's here because we literally sat next to each other on the train. (laughs) And... I don't even, I'm like, she got here before me. I'm like, I don't understand how that happened. <laughs> how the heck did that happen? You, fl- you flew here, I don't even know. But I'm so happy you're here. Um, I would say she literally sat next to me and she's here, I just love it. Um, but I was gonna say um, that, you know, like if someone comes for free, it's, it's like, it's an exchange, right? And so the idea is that if someone comes to your program for free, then they have to like volunteer and sell food. Like if it's a food program, Maybe they make, it's a, it's a, you do some kind of a healthy food sale, and then they can then just like sell food in order to come join the organization for free. They, they have to volunteer and do work. So there's always a level of an exchange, but it's not like, and they feel good about it too, you know? Just like she said, it's just like you, you want everyone to feel good about it. If you're just taking, it's never fun. And so and you don't get the, the idea results. is that like, 
in doing this kinds of like okay so it's different tiers some people pay some people you know pay a, a, a lower amount if, if it's subsidized by a Whole Foods or something and then there's those who get to come for free but then they have to volunteer and sell food and actually make the organization money in a different way so we have time for about one more okay then I guess we'll be the last question so I have a question and my daughter also wanted to say something into the microphone um, <laughs> yay okay um, hi, my name is Lumina. Um, I'm just starting my own spiritual business, and I'm really wondering how do you know how much of yourself it feels like I am in some ways my brand and my very personal spirituality is part of my business, and I, I'm getting a little confused knowing how much of my soul to share and how much to keep just for me. Um, so I'm, I'm asking about that, and then my daughter wanted to say something. Mm -mm. Oh, okay. But she's also very happy to be here she's with you. She's so cute. She just turned five today. Oh, yay! Oh, 85 today. Oh, yeah, by the way, she's 85 today. Mm. Okay. The best. Um... I do want to speak about being your brand. Mm -hmm. I am my brand, um, and that is complex. And so there are people who do it one way, like a Glennon Doyle of the world, you know, really, she doesn't share everything, but she shares way more than I ever would. <laughs> um, and it's amazing, I freaking love her, but I don't want to tell that much. And, and then for me, I have my boundaries, like, you know, Mickey might share a certain amount, I might share a certain amount, and it's really like, here's what I recommend. Every time you're gonna put a blog post, or a YouTube video, or an Instagram story, or whatever it is, teaching a workshop, like, just w whatever your practice is, my practice is going within and just checking in, having a couple breaths, and just asking, you know, what's right. And, and not that I ha stop and do that every two seconds, you haven't seen me doing that. But like, when, when you practice that, you know you're a spiritual teacher, right? When you practice that, the tether is quite strong. And so, so, so you'll, you'll still have those moments where you're like, ooh, overshare hangover. But for the most part, you'll be tethered to what's true and right for you. And, and you know, you've got kids, right? So there's that, and I've got kids, and, and I thought it was gonna be one way with the kids in the business, and it's not the way I thought it was gonna be, and I, I do put pictures of them on social media. I thought I never would, and here I am. Oh. Um, <laughs> but that's not like my main thing, and so, so it's really just like listening to that voice inside because you will see models. Here's my, here's my advice to, you know, my whatever, to myself and all, all is please, please, please do not look at what other people are doing mm. as the way you need to do it. Mm. Because if we're going to change the way it is, we have to do it the way that feels right to us. And if you are trying to build a new model, you can't build it based on other people. So you just have to decide for you what feels good. I, I have something I think is really important on this subject, which is even if you are your brand, whatever in whatever way you are your brand, um, because it's true in some ways, you know, it's true all the time, but then it's more true if you have a certain like face of a brand or whatever. Um, the, the one of the big issues with 
any type of business is that you, you, and it gets very complicated when you are the face of the brand or you, you know, you think you are or whatever you want to be. Um, the, the business itself, even if you are the face of it or it is you, has its own identity. Therefore, you're serving the identity of the business and, and it gets complex when it, when it is you, quote unquote, but all of it, even Glennon Doyle, it's a narrative that she's creating. People are using the TMI narrative quite a bit, especially in the millennial generation, um, as a, a way to kind of, you know, whether they're conscious of it or not, as a way to hook people into their story and their narrative. And they may actually think it's true completely, you know, in, in but the, you also will see a lot of those types talking about, I'm so burnt out, I'm so fatigued, it's, you know, that's really wearing on me, the, the too, you know, sharing too much type of, of brand. Um, and the reason it's wearing on them is because they don't understand that the business itself has its own identity and they are serving it. And, and if you understand that, then you will not get burned out because you are serving something that's greater than you, even if it appears to be you, quote unquote. It's just like money. I mean, everything is made up and all of our, you know, concepts of who we are and are not is made up and it'll change and the narrative. I mean, hopefully you tell a good story and, and you're telling a good story that that is, it's not that it's not authentic, but you could tell, I could tell you, you know, 11 different stories from today that from different angles and perspectives that would all have been somewhat true. <laughs> and it just depends on the perspective of, of how I want to share that. So you're serving something greater than you and if you really get that you will not get the classic kind of burnout story that is another thing people like to share on social media as a way to hook people in um, and and I think that's a low level of participating in the conversation I think there's such a much I, I really call you all to a much higher level of narrative and and dynamicity when it comes to how you how you serve the the and if you are a multiple you know offender in entrepreneurialism, um, each one has its own identity, doesn't it? I mean, and they complete different and demands and just like any relationship, it's really interesting. Even you know every studio I open, which has the same name, has its own identity and a completely different set of of rigors and mores and ethos. It's very interesting that part, I think. Um, so yeah, that, that would be my one thing to say to you. I, I do feel like we need to take a, 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 a question from a man. Because there's a lot of and men. There, yeah, I really feel like, can we do that? Are you guys able to stay in the room here? OK. Um, yeah, this guy yeah, wanted to ask a question. Yeah, I could tell. It was like, they, like I'm like, you know, <laughs> chopped you, liver it. around here. Um, uh, well, uh, been even out at some point, right? But um, I was curious, for each of you, it's in a different way, whether it's advice or a process or a technique or a product, and especially something as intimate as, as spiritual advice, financial or hygiene, how do you create the conditions of trust to come forth? How do you create the conditions of trust I, I mean, like, like for people to trust you or for you to trust in something greater? Because I could answer that a couple. Oh, okay, great. That's awesome. That's um, for me, um, I tell the truth. And then 
people trust me. <laughs> <laughs> I think I, I love that. It's great. Um, and I'm so excited to get to know the three of you. And the four of you, I'm just like to really spend more time with you girls. It's really cool. Um, I mean, for me with products, I know that when we're introducing like a product that people haven't seen before and haven't, you know, even known what it is and what it does, um, to get someone to shift their behavior to like bleeding your underwear to using a bidet from wiping your butt. I mean, like these are like big shifts in like what you've been taught for your whole life. And so, uh, and so um, there really needs to be a level of like, so the, tr the trust thing is, is really critical. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I have like a, a, a three-pronged actual thesis statement. So this actually was like a perfect feeding into the thing. Because um, I, you know, this is really helpful. Yeah, I think because I learned it and I was like, oh wow, like it, it really transferred from each one of my businesses that were all kind of taboo, very taboo and very uncomfortable talking about to being like something cool to talk about now. Um, so the first thing to create is obviously a best-in-class product. You know, the product has to you know really stand on its own. Has to be something that people like want to wear, want to use. You know, <laughs> like people want to interact with it, and they, it feels like an upgrade to their lives. It has to be a true, true innovation that people actually like and want. Uh, it can't just be like, eh, it's good enough, you know. It has to really be something that you would want in your life, for real. So, so best-in-class product. And then the second prong is considered design across every touch point of your brand. Like really, really, really considering your design, your aesthetic, like your choice of font, like your spacing, your breathing room. Like everything plays a role in people trusting you. Um, when you think about like, Apple or you think about, you know, even launching new products like Thinks or even Tushy, like people now trust these brands because there's a level of like aesthetic calmness to it. It feels like, oh, I, it, it just feels like artful. It feels really design considered. And, and when it does, it does, it does create a level of trust. Mm -hmm. And then the third thing, which I think is as important as a best in class product and considered design across every touch point of your brand, which includes Facebook ads, which includes website, which includes flyers, which includes like every, your packaging, which includes the product itself, like everything needs to be considered. Like I, I fought with my team today about the size of the embossed logo on top of a new product, you know? And I was like, no, it can't be embossed. It needs to be indented, like, you know, stuff like that. And it needs to be half the size because otherwise it looks corny. Like, you know, like that shit matters, you know? Um, so, so it really, um, so, so, so best in class product, consider design across every touch from your brand. And the third, is accessible, relatable language. The way you talk can't be too academic, too clinical, too medical, too, te too technical, too like high soundy, where you're like spiritual, 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 ah, you know, or like high tech, you know, quad tech layers of technology, antimicrobial, moisture wicking, leak proof, absorb. It's like what the fu I don't even know what you're saying right now, <laughs> you know? Does it work? Like you know? And so it's same thing with with Tushy. It's like you know, if it's too technical, if it's too medical devicey, if it's too if you're trying to be too like, we're the value propositions in a way that's just too much. It's just people are like, I, I, I don't get it. too much. I can't. So it's really the accessible. Like the way we talk about all of our products is the way is like we text our best friend. Like how do you text your best guy friend or text your best girlfriend or text your like closest family member? You kind of like are a little like silly and a little funny and a little like emoji e and a little like you know you kind of like. You're not too like, I wonder what they're going to want to hear from me. Like, what do, like, wonder what the customer wants to, and then just becomes so contrived and so inauthentic and so like, uh, you know? And so it's like, like the way I talk about, if you go through like our, our website, you know, even for Tushy now, we just created a new 
a new page called Benefits of a Bidet, just read it. It'll just, you just laugh the whole way through because it's like, it's exactly how we would talk about it to our best friends. Mm -hmm. So I really go to hellotoshi.com and then just click on Benefits of a Bidet and actually like, it's, it's friggin' hilarious. And so I just, I always think that, that you can shift culture, you can change behavior when you have all of those three things met in a really, really thorough way. Yeah. yeah, that's my thesis. Mm -hmm. Okay. <laughs> oh, yeah. clapping for myself. I started my own clap. <laughs> okay. Excellent. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, I'll just quickly say that the trust, um, something we talk about with trust in the, all the kind of realms of conversation that we have um, in the Rama scene is that if you create self-trust in terms, and I would put it in the terms of you're showing up for yourself in a certain kind of um, self-discipleship. Um, so if you create uh, the, the, the environment of self-trust, which sounds simple, but so many of us don't trust ourselves. Um, so there's just the resonance of that, that distrust of self happening throughout everything that you do. Um, and so when you create that kind of self-trust, there's a momentum because you know that you're going to show up in a certain way and things even if it's a if it's ramshackle or everything went wrong or you know you didn't get up to meditate or thing you know the, the it's the it's the no good very bad horrible day uh, <laughs> there's still a level of self-trust that you've built and the momentum of that and that is in an auric way or in an energetic way a frequency way why people will trust you and that's and that it, it's a you know you build it you build it and it, it's a but there's a momentum the only thing I would add is that I listen a lot. I receive people before I attempt to contribute to them because I feel like we really want to be received mm. more than anything. <coughs> want to be seen, heard, felt, acknowledged, understood. So that's my number one commitment and way of building trust. Comedy works too. Yeah. It does. So before we close out, I thought we could sing happy birthday to the birthday ladies. What do you guys Yay! think? Yay! Yes. So do you, what's your name? Shalom. Shalom. Oh, and her. And I know, and, yeah. and what's your name? Betsy. Betsy. So Shalom and Betsy. You guys ready? One, One two, two, three. three. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Betty. Happy birthday to you. Um, maybe you I would I would like to know how to how to find you guys on Insta or the best way to find you girls would be probably good. Yeah, I'll, cl I'll close out. So this is Kate Northrup. This is her book, Do Less, available for, for yep, <laughs> Do Less, available for pre-order out uh, April second. It's available for pre-order right now. now. Yes. KateNorthrup.com/pre-order. Mm. You can get presents. Perfect. <laughs> and where can we find you? Um, or at Kate Northrup. And this, and this is Ra Goddess. And Ra is offering, if you want to come down here afterward and get one of these little 
um, doodads. Yeah. And uh, this is, do you want to tell us about what yeah. this is? So this is a complimentary, complimentary webinar all around shifting our relationship to capitalism. So the conversation that we had today, this is a two-hour webinar that I lead that really goes deeper into how do you identify and then actually shift everything that stands in the way of you and your money. Um, my gift to you all, truly. Ragadis. Okay, this is Guru Jagat. And Guru Jagat is the author of Invincible Living. Be, be sure to pick up your copy today. Where is it available? Amazon, we everywhere? Don't, it got lost in the storm. It's like, it's, you know, we don't, it's buried underneath some stuff. <laughs> but you can get it on Amazon if you, you can, want. Yeah. Um, it's heavy. You don't want to drag it around. Um, but <laughs> Where else can we find you? Well, we're doing, you know, one thing I'd like to invite you all to is a mass meditation that we're doing on Friday for International uh, Intersectional Women's Day. So if you want to join us for that, that's mm. happening. And there's some information. Um, it's just a live stream on a bunch of different channels. But it will be live stream on my digital platform, Rama TV. So I'd love to meditate with you. And then um, at Guru Jagat. Mm. Great. Mm. And yeah. <laughs> and this is Mickey Agarwal. And her book, Disrupt Her, is available now. <laughs> Everywhere books are sold. And where can we find you? Um, well, if you want to see a weird video where I'm being birthed out of a vagina, um, <laughs> go to disrupther.co. Um, and, uh, and <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm always, like, if you have any, any comments, questions, anything, you can just um, send me a DM on Instagram. It's just at Mickey Agrawal. Agrawal, as they say in India. Um, and then um, just seriously, just go to Tushy, hellotushy.com. It'll change your life. And thanks and everything else, but start with that. Okay. Okay. All right, thanks everybody so much for being here.